Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Demartini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to our good news segment. And by the way, this really is a good news segment. Dr. Donica Moore is joining us here today, women's health expert, and joining us for what? Here's what you've heard me talk about for years. If you don't have your gut right, man, <laughs> that makes life really unbelievably not so good. Dr. Moore, great to have you here. And I think that's like an understatement. <laughs> it really is. You know, if you think about it, your intestines are not something you should be thinking about on a regular basis, maybe more than once a day. Uh, but for people with irritable bowel syndrome, this not only is something that they think about, they obsess about, and it really causes them to have to change many activities of their daily living. And of course, it can also lead to anxiety and depression or yeah. compound existing anxiety and depression. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing really worse than this because the bottom line is anxiety, depression, and all sorts of psychological uh, uh, things that happen to you in terms of how you want to be out in the world. I mean, it's so multifaceted that, you know, if people that are suffer suffering from IBS, they really look at their lives in a way that we were never meant to look at. So that's why I call this a good news segment, because this yeah, is Yeah, there is a lot of right? good news. Yeah, let's get on. There is, a, there is a lot of good news. Awesome. Um, let's get the bad news out of the way. First. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> the bad news is, let's, let's, just, let's dispense with the bad news. Yeah. The bad news is that 16 million Americans are affected. The bad news is that of those people, only about a third ever consult a physician. And of those people, we know that it takes about four years for somebody to get to a gastroenterologist. So that's all bad. The other bad news is there's no cure. We have to just accept that at this point. You know, of course, medical science is always advancing, which is good news. Yeah. The good news is there's a wide range of treatment options. The bad news is you alluded to the symptoms, but mm -hmm. I just kind of want to give people a list. Yes. Um, we're talking about IBSD, which is a type of irritable bowel syndrome that's characterized by this very unpredictable diarrhea. That means it can just come and go. It can strike at any time. And that diarrhea is also characterized by a sense of urgency that if I don't get to the bathroom mm -hmm. right away, I might have an accident. Yeah. And it's also accompanied by really annoying and sometimes very painful abdominal cramping sensations, uh, pain, um, gas, bloating, and all that good stuff. Um, so that's why we talk about it in my podcast, In the Ladies' Room, Yeah, uh, because those are the kinds of toilet talk topics and embarrassing things you know we like to address. I think a little sense of humor goes a long way, but the fact is it, this can be very depressing, and this can be extremely embarrassing and humiliating for mm -hmm. people. 
Yeah. I mean, we're talking about something that dominates your life. Yes. Yeah. It does. And this is not something most people are prepared for. Right. Uh, and I think also it doesn't just happen on one day. This is something that's chronic. It builds up. So I think people gradually adjust over time to, okay, this is just my new normal. Uh, the good news, though, let's get to that. Yeah, yeah. The good news is that um, research in the past couple of years has pointed towards causes. We didn't really know the causes before. So we now know that one cause can be an imbalance in the gut microbiome. Mm. Um, and that is exciting because, of course, the more we learn about the microbiome, the more we learn about what a huge influence this can have on our immune system and numerous other diseases, disorders, and conditions. But also it allows us to target therapies uh, to restore the balance in the gut microbiome. So we know that there's trillions of bacterial organisms that live in our intestines. And most of the time they live in peace and harmony. And most of the time it doesn't cause us any problem. But if there's an imbalance of power structure in the gut microbiome, that can wreak havoc. So one study uh, with a, of 109 patients with IBS showed that 73% of them had an imbalance in their gut microbiome compared to only 16% of healthy people. So that's like a huge difference. Yeah. Um, and then another good news study in a way, it's like one of those good news, bad news <laughs> studies, is, um, yeah, there was this huge millennium cohort study done in active duty military personnel. Uh, and of course, they have access to all their medical records. Um, this was over 41,000 people, and they found that of the 314 people who developed IBS during the study, a large percentage of them had a history of having had an episode of food poisoning or previous um, gastrointestinal infection prior to beginning their IBS symptoms. So yeah. that was very illuminating, and that also, again, points to a probable cause that, you know, it's this imbalance in the gut microbiome may be responsible. I love that we're talking about this because let me tell you two, a couple of reasons. Uh, my aunt and uncle have now since passed, but, you know, you take these two Italian relatives, right? My uncle Ralph, who mm -hmm. would eat anything, hot peppers, you name <laughs> it, hot peppers, beer, wine, just pile it in. And my aunt, she couldn't eat a single thing. And she claimed for herself she was very healthy, but... It didn't matter. IBS, which we now know it as, IBS was part of her journey. Now, I will say this. Mm -hmm. You nailed it because I can remember a point in time where I do believe food poisoning was in her history, right? Um, but well, food poisoning is, very, is much more yeah, common than we, than we think. There's 10 million more, episodes a year. That are reported, right? That are reported. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That are so, reported. This is really the good news because now we're getting research. See, you and I, we appreciate research. The research open up doors. The doors open up possibilities. Exactly. And the possibilities open up relief. Tell us about that. So there's a wide range of treatment options. Of course, once your doctor makes a diagnosis, your doctor may make uh, lifestyle change recommendations. Of course, we want everybody to stop smoking. We want everybody to mm -hmm. increase exercise and we want everybody to do stress management, but that can also particularly help IBS patients. But then they often recommend as first line th uh, prescription therapies, fiber and antispasmodics, which is great for the 30% of patients for whom it works. However, about 70% of patients don't respond or don't respond fully. And I know you're always talking about this, but 
people need to understand that you don't just go to the doctor one time for a medical problem. If you're not responding properly, you need to go back and you need to communicate that with your doctor. And then there's a whole range of other treatment options available, including things that are particularly targeted to restoring this balance in the gut microbiome. I got to ask you this question. I know it's not something that we plan to talk about, but it is something that does get talked about. And it is the confusion slash controversy on water. Now, my uncle would tell my aunt, he'd say, Lee, you got to drink more water. You got to drink more water. I don't even understand why he did it. But what he was kind of saying to her is you have to drink more water for his reasons. He could see what happened to her dehydration. But I I need to get from you like, what is your take on water? So obviously this is also, you know, it depends on who we're talking yeah, about in particular, yeah. but let's just stick to your aunt. Mm-hmm. Um, if she's not eating or not eating much right. and she has irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, mm-hmm. you know, what's diarrhea? Diarrhea is stool with a very high water content. So if you have bad diarrhea, you can easily get dehydrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and dehydration makes everything worse. So I know they're on the other end of the spectrum. There's lots of totally healthy people who are obsessed with drinking water and working out and they probably don't need as much water as they're getting, but it doesn't matter because you just pee out any extra. Mm -hmm. Um, But but being dehydrated uh, is a consequence uh, of severe diarrhea or even moderate to severe diarrhea. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, You really need to stay on top of that. Um, I want to ask you this other question, and I guess it's related to this, but before I do, before um, our short interview is over, I'd love to know how people can find out more, please. Well, I always say the most important place for you to go for personal medical information is your own personal healthcare provider. Yeah. That being said, we have a lot more background information on the topic uh, at the website, ibsdupclose.com. And um, it really gives a lot of educational background, a lot of information about causes, uh, treatments, but also gives suggested questions that you can ask your doctor, which I think is so important. You know, we all bring a grocery list to the store when we go grocery shopping because we don't want to forget three items. Uh, I always recommend that people make a list of their questions before they go into the doctor. And no doctor is going to be offended that you're reading from your list of questions. And if they are, maybe it's time to get a new doctor. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with it's Amen on that. What you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm with you on that. I mean, the other thing I find really helpful is I bring a friend because it's so hard sometimes, mm-hmm. even with the list. And so Absolutely. I love that you mentioned that. That is our right now. That is my go-to advice for anybody that is going to see the doctor. Bring a list. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. I, I am a doctor. Mm-hmm. And when I have a complicated situation, I definitely bring, you know, my boyfriend or my mother mm-hmm. with me because sometimes you forget, you know, you're in the position that you're very vulnerable when you're the patient, especially when you're sitting there with the gown half open in the back. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's also a little overwhelming. And I think many times we are afraid to ask certain questions because we don't really want to know the answer mm-hmm. or because we don't want to be embarrassed or asking a stupid question or, you know, asking a question that we think is something that, you know, we should know. 
Um, there's a whole number of reasons. As you know, also, patients also have this thing they do with questions called the doorknob question, right. <laughs> where we're completely finished with the exam, and then they, you know, get to the door, and they're leaving, and their hand's on the doorknob, and they say, oh, I forgot to ask you about this breast mass I have, you know, which is totally, you know, unrelated. Um, so, you know, that's a frustration for physicians. But the other thing to make a list of, especially if you have a complicated GI history, is to make a list of your actual symptoms. Uh, your doctor's going to want to know when did it start, how frequent, how many times a day do you have diarrhea? Um, and a lot of people don't realize that diarrhea is not just the consistency of your bowel movements, mm -hmm. but it also refers to the frequency. So how many times a day are you going? Uh, and what other symptoms do you have? Even if you think they're totally unrelated, you know, just put it down. It's not your job as the patient to figure out what your diagnosis is. That's your doctor's job. Yeah. Your job is to pick up the phone and make the appointment. I'm so glad you mentioned that because part of this, now look, you know, you are the founding co-chair of the annual uh, National Congress on Women's Health. I am really, I, I'm just thrilled. And I didn't mention that before, but huh. you, this is Thank your life. You. You're out there. You're in the forefront. You're in the front lines, especially for people like me who got a mystery disease in 04. So that's why I do what Aye. I do, like mystery, like we don't know what it is. But I want to ask you this question. Can you give us in the minute we have left a couple of do's and don'ts if you happen to have any for folks today? Yeah, I think my, my first, you know, the first do mm -hmm. is call your doctor uh, and go to the appointment. My second do is go back if your therapy isn't working. Uh, the third do is uh, to keep you know, not a strict diary. You don't have to get obsessive about writing everything down, but definitely keep a list of your symptoms uh, for your doctor because there are those standard questions that they're going to want to know. The number one don't is don't be afraid to ask questions. Mm. Don't be afraid to go back to your doctor and don't be afraid to ask for a referral to a specialist. Right. Yeah, that's the other thing. Um, your internist or your family doctor or your nurse practitioner is not going to be offended if you say, would you please refer me to a gastroenterologist? And a gastroenterologist is somebody who really specializes in these conditions. Mm -hmm. For many people with mild to moderate uh, irritable bowel syndrome, this is, an, this is absolutely a condition that your primary care physician or your primary care healthcare provider can make the diagnosis and can treat you for. However, if you're not responding or things are not going the way that you expected, then it's time to get a consultation uh, with a specialist. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Last question, personal message. What do you want to leave all of us with here today? I think my, pers my, my personal message for women in particular is always to put yourself higher on the to-do list. Uh, you know, we are so good, yeah. and um, by we, I mean me. Mm -hmm. We're so good me at taking care of everybody else. Uh, but we don't always take as good care of ourselves as we should. And then my number one message for men is get your butt to the doctor. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, <laughs> my message to the men is, yeah, it is not beneath you to write a list. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. you so much. And, you know, today. men feel like they have to be so tough. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah, we want everybody to be healthy, don't we, Dr. Moore? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, one of the ways is by talking about these really embarrassing conditions. Yep. 
Um, yeah, there's, yeah, I think my other advice for people, men and women, mm-hmm. and of course, irritable bowel syndrome affects men and women, people of any age, but mostly in their 20s to 40s. Um, I think that I would really encourage people to understand that there's probably nothing that you're going to come up with that your doctor hasn't heard from heard about before. Right. You know, and if there is, they will, and they don't know, they will tell you or they will make a referral to another doctor. So oh. I don't want anybody to avoid going to the doctor because they think what they have is, you know, just too strange or too embarrassing or too bizarre. Um, you know, they've heard it before. And generally, obviously, there are exceptions like yourself with your mystery illness <laughs> where nobody can figure it out. Yeah, uh, we actually did figure it out. Evolved. That's actually why I'm alive oh. today. So I don't want to scare you with that. Oh. Well, so that's good. Okay. <laughs> All right. And maybe offline, you could tell me the punchline. I will nobody tell you wants to have a mystery illness. <laughs> I know. Nobody wants to have a mystery illness. No. But it's only a mystery till we figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. But so I had to learn what you're involved. talking about. I had to, these things you're talking about, even though I do what I do, I couldn't do what you're saying. And that is such a powerful message you're bringing forward. It is so powerful. You couldn't do which part. I couldn't tell the truth about what I was experiencing. Ah, It was hard. It was painful. And your advice to Mm, men and women, man, you could write a book about that for sure. You could write a book about that. Well, I, I have I'd written t- a book. Uh, tell me about it. Okay, I know they're gonna. I'm getting yelled at because I'm keeping you way too long. Please tell oh, me how no, we can find can out more you about you. I know. How can I talk about you? And maybe you'll come on my show. I would love to. Anytime. Absolutely. Anytime. Maybe you'll come on my show in the ladies' room with Dr. Donica, my uh, podcast. Count. Let's call it a date. Okay. Let's uh, do that. All right. Thank you so much. What's your website? It's drdonica.com, which is D-R-D-O-N-N-I-C-A.com. And the website for more information about IBSD is ibsduploscom I love it. Thank you so much for today. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. All right, everybody. We're going to have so much more fun. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Charlene Hess is a redheaded powerhouse of energy, love, and light. As a hairstylist, personal trainer, and life coach, she empowers people to develop a deeper connection with themselves mentally, emotionally, and physically. Join Charlene the third Friday of each month on The Cornelia Stephanie Show. Get ready to experience your highest self, find your purpose, and discover your calling. You too can become unstoppable, shining your light and sharing your gift. Visit Charlene at charlenehess.com. Joining me here today is Dawson Hobbs, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs, Wine and Spirits Wholesalers of America. For those of you listening, you know that our flagship station is out of Seattle, Washington. For those of you out there, I have been telling you that we were going to be doing this interview. And why? Because before anyone else literally had this conversation on the docket, the, the citizens of the state of Washington brought it forth for medical reasons first and now in general. Federal government should respect the rights of states to legalize cannabis. Why? 
Well, I'm not going to talk about it. Dawson's going to talk about it. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I, I got a question for you. Um, I, you know, you just heard me a little bit of ranting right there for our citizens of Washington State, quite frustrated at the moment. But I want to ask you personally for you and in the work that you do, I would like to know what it is about this particular initiative topic, why you are on this trail of bringing this information to the forefront. What is the most important part in your list of priorities in the role you have and in what you hear the public wants? So we represent America's family-owned wine and spirits distributors, and we've been looking at the uh, cannabis legalization issue for quite some time. And we really have settled on the fact that it's time for the federal government to resolve the conflict between mm-hmm. state and federal law. And the best way to do that is by ensuring that states who legalize cannabis have an effective regulatory structure in place. And once that structure is in place, then their right to legalize should be respected. They should have a, a, a healthy cannabis market marketplace that's well-regulated, that protects consumers, that protects those who choose not to consume, and that protects those surrounding states that might not choose to legalize. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have come out and, and honestly have said, look, we need something that puts some kind of standards in the marketplace uh, and does so. I mean, we've seen this happen with alcohol, correct? I mean, we have clearly seen that there is something that has to happen or has happened decades ago, right? Before, probably before you and I were born that had a conversation about this. There's a risk of not doing this, of not having one voice around this. Can you tell us what that risk is? Yeah, it was 85 years ago that prohibition was repealed and and alcohol became legal again. And really, the regulatory model that was put in place then and has evolved since has effectively created uh, a really vibrant and safe alcohol marketplace for the United States. And we think that rather than trying to recreate the wheel, cannabis can just look at that model, uh, adopt the best uh, parts of it, and, and enjoy the same benefits that our regulatory model creates for alcohol it can create for cannabis as well okay let's talk about some of the key components because some of these key components for most people they folks actually think some of these things are actually happening by the way you know they when when we did a poll on this we were astonished to, to hear folks say that they thought this was already handled so i think that is misconception number one that it's not really handled. Everybody thought that the same regulations for alcohol were already in place. And, and I just want us to get updated on what is in place and what the key components of effective cannabis market regulation are. Well, I think one of the important things to remember is for years, cannabis uh, proponents have, have said regulate cannabis like alcohol, and we're saying we agree. But it's important to remember that alcohol regulations don't end at you must be 21 to buy it. Right. There's a host of regulations that involve the, the licensing and behavior of producers, processors, distributors, retailers, and those regulations should apply to the cannabis marketplace. And what they do is they ensure public safety. They help keep the roads safe. They help keep the, keep the product out of uh, the hands of those who are underage. They make sure that the industry behaves uh, responsibly because everyone is licensed and their license is at risk if they violate the law. And then they help uh, keep product integrity by making sure that the product consumers get is what it says it is, contains the same potency that they think it will, and, and is traceable back to the producer so they know it's not coming from a counterfeit or illegal illicit producer. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, there clearly are some other concerns here when it comes to cannabis that uh, we don't have today in the alcohol industry. Not to say that we didn't then, because, you know, I don't want to talk about my family and prohibition, but I just want to say that, you know, originally when we started to look at this way back decades ago, the same concerns existed. However, you've touched upon something very important. In the world we live in today and what we're seeing now with simply plant-based growth and farming, there are even more concerns for cannabis that it doesn't get mixed, that it doesn't get blended, that it doesn't get accidentally dot, dot, dot. And, and from what we understand, I don't think there are standards around that, are there? Or uh, how far out of loop am I? <laughs> Well, it, it varies significantly from state to state, and, and it would take you know a long time to go through all the various right. regulations. I think your point is is exactly right. Is we need to create a regulatory structure so that all consumers and non consumers can be confident that the products coming to market are safe, yep. that they're not going to put people in jeopardy, yep. that they're not going to um, you know put people in a position where they can threaten themselves or those around them. Yeah. So you're touching upon something that I know we're probably going to get to in part two of this. And that is, look, I am a mom and I am watching the regulation of this. As a mom, you're looking at something and you're saying to yourself, oh, my God, I know what my kid was at risk for when this was on the street. How can I be assured that the same kinds of let's just call them guidelines are out there? Minimum age. What's the effect of driving under? How are we going to handle that? How can I make sure that what I'm buying or what my children are buying or what people are buying are not cut with dot, dot, dot? Now, if there is a standard or let's say a federal, doesn't it take some of the burden off the states? I mean, I'm almost thinking it's like more cost effective. But again, I don't know. Well, I think like alcohol, uh, the primary regulator should be at the state level. The primary regulator of alcohol is at the state level. There is a yep. federal minimum yep. um, regulations, but the primary regulations are done at the state level. And and that makes the most sense because mm -hmm. the people that are going to be enforcing the law are going to be your local law enforcement, local governments. They're the ones that should have the power to enforce those regulations. I'll just say that in 85 years, we're at or near all-time lows for underage access to alcohol and driving under the influence incident. And that's because of a lot of lessons we've learned. And it's not just having a 21-year-old drinking age. Yeah. It's also having education. It's having effective enforcement, effective penalties. Those, those same things need to come to the cannabis yeah. space. They need to have the same education about driving, about underage uh, access, all of those things. And, and there's no reason to recreate the wheel. They can take the lessons mm -hmm. we've learned and apply them to their product. What's the resistance? Can I ask you a question about this? Because, you know, I sense there is a resistance, not from you, but, you know, again, I live in the state of Washington. You know, is there a resistance around this? And, and how do you pinpoint that? What, what would you say that's about? And believe me, we got 30 seconds and then we'll come back to it later on. But is there a resistance? Well, I, th I think that people need to understand the difference between over-regulation and effective regulation. And in the alcohol marketplace, we have effective regulation. Mm -hmm. And that's the same type of regulation yeah. we'd like to see brought to the cannabis marketplace. I love it. We're going to take a short break, everybody, when we come back. Yeah, we got lots more to talk with Dawson Hobbs about. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk about, wait a minute, you mean cannabis is not really legalized everywhere? Should it be? And what does effective cannabis market regulation 
mean right down to the penny. Let's take a short break. We'll see you in a bit. Uh, welcome back, everyone. It's great to have you here. Um, look, uh, we were previously talking about what I think is a very important conversation, and, and it's about uh, federal government. Federal government should respect the rights of states to legalize cannabis. Um, however, there, there are many questions around this. You know, legal, well-regulated marketplace is needed, similar to the laws governing alcohol. That's the question on the table. The other question really is that many people don't know what the state of affairs is. And I'm hoping that this conversation with you will bring information to the forefront. Because Dawson, I really do think people do believe that the same kind of precedence, the same kind of action, the same kind of regulation uh, that has been put in place over decades is being just clearly being implemented. And I, I think it's important for the public to know what, what the status is, where we are today, and where you see this going. So let's start with that. Uh, where are we today? And I think you touched upon it a little bit. Um, you know, is cannabis legalized everywhere? Should it be legalized? And what has your regulation research discovered is the call to action, if you could? Well, I think the biggest thing that needs to happen is is the Congress needs to take action to resolve this uh, tension between state and federal law. I mean, you have a number of states, you know, more than forty states that have have legalized in some way uh, cannabis, and and yet under federal law, it remains not just a crime but a, a fairly serious one if you're involved in the banking and 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 distribution of the product. So, uh, you know, that has to happen. Um, but we also think that they shouldn't just uh, give states a, a blank check to go do whatever they want on cannabis. They should ensure that states take appropriate action to regulate it so that there's a safe and, and controlled marketplace. And and that's really so important in the conversation today and, and you taking the time to speak with us. Before we go any further, I want to make sure folks know how they can find out more information. I think it's important too, uh, to, to just make sure there's a website or someplace that you can refer people. So the best thing to do is to visit our website at wswa.org. Um, you can find out information on our uh, position there and also uh, links to our Facebook and, and Twitter accounts. So again, that's wswa.org. Now, sidebar to this is there are many marketing and many uh, financial reports that are coming out about this marketplace. Let's just call it that. Um, I don't think we even have a clue about the magnitude of cannabis in the marketplace. Uh, clearly, we know in the state of Washington that uh, there have been some very innovative ways to bring cannabis to your, the, the, to your home. Uh, we're talking a lot of money here. We're talking an influx of cash. We're talking an influx of banking. We're talking an influx in many states of taxes. Can you talk to the financial uh, aspect of this a bit? 
Oh, I mean, there, there's all kinds of estimates out there, but I mean, I think there's a consensus that the the cannabis industry across the country is is nearing the ten billion dollar mark when it comes to economic activity. Um, and for right now, that's occurring in in sort of a, a another world where they're legal in some states, not legal at the federal level. They can't use banks in most cases. Uh, so the question becomes, uh, how do we resolve that? And the, the way to resolve that is for the federal government to to help states um, have the ability to legalize, but also ensure that those states um, exercise their ability to regulate. Oh, boy. You see, this is really why I'm so thrilled to have you here today, is because there are so many, uh, what I like to call tipping points, you know, so many, you know, let's call them plots on the map to get to a place where in the end, we bring it down to the citizens, because that's really what this is about. When all is said and done, you know, overwhelmingly uh, in the United States, for sure, people have said, come on, we say yes to this. Why is it so difficult? So I don't think the public knows the complexity of what you're doing. That's why your interview and what we're talking about here today is so important when you say. Well, absolutely. Creating a new um, effective regulatory scheme for a new product, it it can be very complicated. But we think it would be made much simpler if they start with what we do for alcohol Mm. and simply adapt it to cannabis um, rather than starting and trying to reinvent the wheel. It's not, you know, honestly, when I hear (laughs) you say that, when I hear you say that, I'm thinking, why not? I mean, there's already something in place, albeit many people may say, okay, it's going to need modification. Sure. But why not start there so that the movement could be made to present something uniform across the board that then could be changed, regulated, differentiated by each state? I mean, it sounds so simple. What's a roadblock? Well, it really, it's, it's just about public perception. It's mm-hmm. about getting people to, to understand, frankly, that alcohol regulations um, provide a lot of uh, benefits to the marketplace. Um, most people don't see the regulations because they happen before the product gets to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then second is, is just working with Congress to, to make sure they understand uh, the benefits of the regulation and how it can impact their state and the surrounding states. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about a lot of things, but I'm sure there are some things I didn't ask you about. And I want to kind of turn it over to you at this point. Um, what is it that, you, you know, you are most wanting to bring to our listenership today? You know, what is it that folks, if you had your top three, what would you be wanting to say to folks here today listening? Well, I, I think the biggest thing that we'd like to say, it's really one thing, and that is the, the lessons of alcohol regulation for 85 years mm. have provided the safest, most vibrant marketplace in the world, and that those lessons can be applied to cannabis, and that cannabis can adopt uh, regulations similar to alcohol and have a safe and effective regulatory structure that protects consumer safety, that protects product integrity, that protects the, the industry from bad actors and and ensures that going forward that industry would be able to to operate in a safe and responsible manner one of the things that i want to mention too is that you know you're senior vice president government affairs for wine and spirits wholesalers of america right wswa is the abbreviation for folks out there Um, one of the things that i want to ask you about is these wholesalers what is the general consensus if there is one 
of Wholesalers of America. What, what is it that folks are saying to you? Well, uh, so so our members are are proud to be a central link in the alcohol regulate model, mm-hmm. and they're proud of the record that we have of providing consumer safety and an appropriate product, and they think that the that system translates very well to cannabis, and they they would like to see uh, those regulations uh, mirrored on the cannabis front. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't know if you know the answer to this question, um, but cannabis is is like alcohol in many, many ways. I mean, you don't wake up one day and there is a plant that's called alcohol or there there is a core product called alcohol. Right. Um, you, you know, alcohol comes from something in the farming industry, as far as we know, certainly wine, we know how wine is produced. And cannabis also falls into an interesting category like that. So when we're talking about regulations, we're not talking about regulations only at the point when the product gets put into a bottle. Are we talking broader than that to ensure that the the production of cannabis, the produ- just like alcohol, the production of cannabis is adhered to in certain regulatory aspects and safeties for people. Because I think that's really in the end, when I think about this, there's got to be some safety component. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, it's certainly the case that, for instance, the formulas for alcohol are tested to make sure they don't include um, uh, pesticides yeah. or, or, or other mm-hmm. um, unhealthy products. Mm-hmm. You know, similar things uh, can happen for cannabis. Right? Oh, yeah. they, they they need to be uh, standards regarding what goes into the products, um, whether it's simply uh, you know marijuana that is smoked or whether it's processed into an edible or an oil or something else. You know, all those standards need to be in place to ensure that what the consumer finally gets is something that doesn't have. Um, unknown uh, ingredients in it or, or unintended health consequences. Yeah, I, I, the reason I'm asking you this question is because many people point to tobacco. Let me just say that. Many people point to tobacco and they are looking at tobacco and they say, oh, that tobacco's it. No, you know, cannabis and the use of cannabis is cut across the board. It's not just something that people smoke. It's going to be, it's something that people will have in their food, something that people will be able to put in their food. It's something that pe- people may be able to put in something they drink. Um, it, it, I mean, the range of cannabis goes everywhere from, yep, I can smoke it to wait a minute. It's medicinal and I can now put it on my skin and in my body. As a matter of fact, cannabis oil has by far uh, change the landscape for many people and especially people that have uh, autism and people that have episodes. So the wide range of use, I think, is one of the more complicated issues when it comes to cannabis, right? Right. I, I think what's important to note is that you know I, everything you read says that smoking cannabis is declining and that other forms of consumption mm-hmm. are increasing. Yeah. And as you get to those other forms, you do in, in you start to put in processing and, and oh. other ingredients. And it's important that all that's done in a safe and regulated way. I agree completely. And that's why I'm so glad that you're here today. Because if we look at this in the way we look about the food in our body, for example, right? 
And we think about, I'm going to pull something off the shelf. I'm going to give it to my family. I'm going to bring it to the forefront, or I'm going to use it medicinally. I think everybody would agree with you. There has got to be a level of safety. I think what we're not really sure about, and you're helping us understand, is how that could be done, what that level could be. And the impact of regulation, has anybody talked about that? Well, we've seen the impact of regulation in the alcohol marketplace. And effective regulation has created a safe marketplace where consumers have a variety of choices and they can purchase a confidence that they're going to be uh, pure. Yeah, and we've seen it in in food and drugs. I want to thank you for today. I know this is a big conversation. I know I asked you a lot of questions. Um, I think our goal here on the Dr. Pat Show, as well as yours, is to provide education and information because there is a call to action. And I want to ask you, last question, what is the call to action? What would you like folks to do with this information? I think the best thing they can do is visit our website at WSWA.org and learn more about our policy as well as what we're doing on Capitol Hill. I love it. Thank you, Dawson. Thank you for today. Great. All right, Thank everybody. You. Yeah, I, listen, I'm sure you're going to hear more about this. I think it's really a great thing. Dawson Hobbs is out there in the forefront doing these interviews, letting people know that there is a way to get this done so that safety is first, regulation is first, and you know actually what it is you're putting in your body. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Would you like your next chapter to be free from fear and angst? Tune in to Your Next Chapter Radio, navigating through life's transitions with Shelley Ryan the fourth Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Shelley's contagious enthusiasm guides you through life's transitions deliberately, mindfully, and funnily. For Your Next Chapter Coaching or to listen, visit YourNextChapterCoaching.com or call 602-617-8351. Next! Hey, everybody. Welcome. Hey, this is our good news segment. You know, many of you have told me, many of you have heard me talk about my obsession right now with the information that we have available to us about the weather. Why is that important? Well, for several reasons, but I'm not going to talk about that. I've got Paul Walsh joining us here today, Director of Weather Strategy, IBM Global Business Services, the weather company. Today, we're talking about Weather So Smart, how it works, what it does, and what artificial intelligence is now doing for us in our everyday lives. Paul, great to have you. Welcome. Well, thank you, Dr. Pat. Great to be here. You know, once upon a time, uh, well, I, as I recall, weather was fairly predictable, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the world we live in now, even if it is predictable, it's not predictable in the way it used to be. And so what that means for a lot of us who does uh, our work, our business, who has to get from here to there, we are now more acutely aware I would love to talk with you about what you're discovering and how technology is allowing us not just to get information, but to personalize it from your perspective. Yeah, well, you're, you're absolutely right in terms of the, the, 
the increasing impact of the weather on all of us. And, and part of the reason for that is, frankly, because we're so connected to the weather now, more so than we ever have before, uh, via things like our mobile phone. So more and more of us are getting the weather. Um, we check the weather several times a day, uh, universally, it seems. Um, and so the weather forecast becomes more important than it ever has. And, of course, you know, Dr. Pat, if, if there's any kind of weather event uh, that's on the horizon, that that weather forecasting message becomes amplified uh, via social media. And so the, the effect of that, the combination of the fact that there's more and more of us uh, living in areas that are exposed to weather, think of you know, what's going on even now in North Carolina and South yeah. Carolina, and that we're all connected via, the, via mobile phone and we're all talking about it and we're all getting that information. That means that that weather forecast is on the one hand more impactful than it ever has been before, but on the other hand, it provides us, because of the data that we have now and the platforms that we have via the mobile phone, it provides us the, a way to create uh, information that will help us become more resilient and more adaptive to these increasingly impactful weather information, weather events. Yeah. And that's sort of the bottom line of what we're doing. Yeah. The thing that I noticed, Paul, and I would love for you to talk about it is, you know, for the average person, yes, of course, uh, my family, uh, my mom was born in Charlotte. So, you know, my family, my aunts, my uncles, they're right in the middle of what happened in the Carolinas and Virginia, especially now looking at the, the rise in water. We're all acutely aware of that. The thing I'm struck by is how you all have helped governments prepare better. And I think yep. that right there is a game changer. What do you think? Uh, absolutely. Uh, government and business, too, uh, honestly. But from a, from a government perspective, our ability, our collective ability to predict the weather is mm -hmm. significantly better than it used to be. Our ability to predict hurricanes, for example. Um, we can predict uh, the five-day hurricane forecast now is as accurate as the two-day forecast was, you know, 20 years ago. And the same is true with just the, the local forecast. In fact, the, the hurricane forecast for Florence, I want to say the five-day forecast was accurate to within, you know, yeah. 20 miles yeah. until yeah. landfall. And so the, 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 the technologies, our ability to, to understand what's going to happen um, has grown tremendously. Now the next step is, okay, now that we know or we've got a better idea, we can be more precise in terms of being able to predict what's going to happen, how can we translate that to people to help better plan for those events, whether mm -hmm. it's just a, you know, a person in the, and, and, uh, in, in, uh, living in Tacoma or Seattle or, or if it's supporting a large business or supporting governments. I was just, ironically, I was in um, uh, Jamaica during the hurricane and, and, and at, a, at a presentation uh, that was all about resilience. It was hosted by the uh, Minister of Tourism. And they're looking at the information to help, and from a global perspective, to leverage it to, to help um, those that industry better prepare for these kind of events. Yeah, and you know, you touched upon something. I want to follow up with a question around that resilience. Now, resilience means to me not just about how do I prepare for uh, weather that is devastating, uh, literally uh, iconic kinds of forecasts. But let's talk about weather for our everyday lives, because that's even changed. You know, we're coming yep. into the cold and flu season. All of us want to keep up with our workouts or our regular routine. And there has to be, I think, for people uh, in this country now, a level of predictability 
beyond the devastation of some of these larger events. What, what are your thoughts on that? Are people using this now more so than ever for their day-to-day routine? Yes, absolutely. In fact, that's really the, 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 the relaunch of the Weather Channel app is really to provide uh, a, a planning tool as opposed to like an inform- information portal. And by that, I mean um, to provide uh, a person with something that's going to sort of alert them when they need to be imp- uh, thinking about um, uh, an event that's going to be happening and need to prepare for it, but do it in a way that is non- non-obtrusive, but uh, that is uh, as accurate as possible and as specific as possible. Now, you know, ironically, I, I'm a former military guy, and, and my, yeah. the last job I had was as the, uh, the chief meteorologist at the Tacoma, or at McCord Air Force Base, or in Tacoma. And the, obviously, there's, there's lots of weather out there. Yeah, yeah. Woo! <laughs> and, oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> and, but the, uh, the ability to translate that weather forecast into something that is meaningful to a person and to be able to sort of serve that up without having to check the weather is where we're going. And the, the, the leveraging of the machine learning and artificial intelligence is all sort of, you know, part and parcel of this and it's it's really it's really sort of an outgrowth of the fact that the weather company was acquired by IBM you know, a couple of years ago and that sort of you know a lot of the the intelligence and the uh, the technological scale that we've built into this app come from that from that um, partnership yeah and so let's talk about it let's get a little mega Let's get a little mega with information, if I could. You know, once upon a time, mom and dad turn on the TV and you got the weather. We are not talking about that now. We're talking about let's get let's get down with this technology. We're talking about millions, billions of forecasts. Tell us the magnitude of what you all have covered. Yep. And so what we we realized uh, some, some years back that the way that people are consuming weather information now is more and more from their mobile phones everywhere. Everywhere oh, yeah. people are using their mobile phones. So we wanted to create a weather forecast that was as geographically specific as possible and as accurate as possible. So what we've done is we've created our own weather forecast. We call it forecast on demand. And basically what we do is we create a forecast that is geographically um, granular down to about you know a few square blocks, about a half a kilometer. Um, and we do that for uh, every point on Earth. So there's 2.2 billion points that we forecast for. And we, we pull in 150 different sources of data and we create our own model using that data. We generate about 400 terabytes of data every day, which, to give you some scale, it actually blows my mind a little bit, Pat. It's it's equal to about 200 academic research libraries every day. So we're crunching all of that data, and then we're using the the, the algorithms developed by our staff of about 170 data scientists and meteorologists to create that weather forecast that you get on that Weather Channel app. And we've done that because, we, again, we wanted to be able to provide a forecast for that, that would be uh, usable by literally every person on Earth. Of course, every person on Earth doesn't use it yet, but, you know, give us, give us a couple months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, <laughs> but, no, uh, but right. hundreds of millions of people do. And it's, it's obviously critically important because of what, we're, what we've just been talking about, how important the weather is. And not just from the big hurricanes. The weather actually has a meaningful impact on each and every one of us each and every day. And so th- it's, a, it's a really, really uh, critical sort of a planning uh, uh, input. 
and uh, the goal of creating this new this new app is to create something mm-hmm. that is unobtrusive, um, and it provides you the information that you need to know uh, when you know it. You know, when I, I mentioned I was the the uh, uh, I, I was the chief meteorologist at Tacoma Air Force Base. And one of the things we used to say when I was in the military was that the weather's only important until it's important, and then it's too late. Right. So the, the goal here is to create something that you don't have to check. It will just tell you when something of, of meaningful is going to happen, number one. And number two, what kind of things that you probably should be thinking about doing as related to that sort of event. Well, how do people find out more information? And then most importantly, how do they download the app? Yep, so the app is available today. It's available anywhere you download apps, so either from Apple or Google or, or wherever. Right, the play, um, Google, and, uh, any kind of app store or wherever people prefer to go. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I highly recommend it. I, you know, I'm, I'm in the business, and it's what I use. And when people ask me what the weather's going to be, I don't tell them, but I check the weather comment channel app, and I say, oh, it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I... Um, and the other thing is, if there's interest in around the business side of it, just in general interest, it's uh, business.weather.com, and it speaks to all the things that we're doing with really the largest businesses in, in both North America and Europe. Um, let's talk about now distribution and access. You know, we have been in media for 15 years. 15 years ago, we figured out that one of the most understated population or demographics were women. Uh, we also figured that those women, women, moms, especially over 35, had something that they needed to know. So this yep. particular demographic now, women, moms, over 35, are the leaders in digital online 24-7. This app has got to be seriously important for that population of people. Yes, absolutely. And it's funny you mention that because, you know, a lot of the work that I do with businesses where we'll, we'll do analysis against uh, sales data and weather. And one of the things that always comes out is the fact that women are planners much more so than men. And so it's much more um, relevant exactly the way you said uh, for moms, um, uh, for example, yeah. in terms of being able to have something at, at hand that will help them plan. Yeah. Um, I know that these interviews are short, and I probably have time for one last question. Um, I'd like to know a little insider information. What's on the horizon? Because somebody like me, you know, who doesn't just, you know, tune into the weather, I look at some of the the data, some of the special series bits of information that are on the Winter Weather Channel. I mean, I watch yep. some of the history on how storms are formed and things like that. Probably should have been a somebody studying the weather. I don't know. But what's on the horizon? <laughs> I mean, you know, we're talking about a fabulous app, which I, of course, have on my phone. But I know you all. There's got to be a next thing. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the weather forecasts obviously are getting more and more accurate as we're pulling in more data. Um, there's there's a, a, a topic called Internet of Things where we're able to pull in data from many, many different sources, from mobile phones, from cars, from airplanes. And, and, and now we've got the, the technology that we're increasingly able to sort of process that technology really, really fast. And then overlaying on this uh, the, the ability to leverage uh, artificial intelligence, um, all of those things are combining to create these technologies that are going to be um, increasingly utilized both by businesses and by, and by you know, you and I, by consumers. Yeah. Um, and they're going to be, a lot of these, in, these, these data points, these insights will be embedded sort of seamlessly into systems that you may not even see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they'll be powering those systems and making them more, um, 
uh, more efficient. You know, for for example, I'm not sure how much time we've got, but I've worked with I work with grocery stores where they they actually in Europe where they're pulling in this data, they're running uh, running um, analysis against the data and then um, and historical sales, and then using uh, predictions of um, on of uh, inventory and what they're going to be needing over the next few days. So I just got the wrap signal. So I, but I could talk for you. Well, an hour. yeah, maybe maybe <laughs> they'll allow us to get back together. I want to say one last thing. The app okay. is not just about getting newsflash on what the weather is like today. It's chock full of videos. It's chock full of information. It's chock full of alerts. And please give yep. out your website again. And thank you very much for today. Okay. Yep. Business.weather.com or download the app from wherever you download apps. I love it, everybody. Stay tuned. More to come on this. I'm Dr. Pat. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.